One o'clock, are y'all excited about Jesus? Come on, yes. Hey, I wanna just say, first of all, thank you last weekend, we took up a special offering uh, for the special needs children in our church, and we said we needed to raise about 150,000 to build out five rooms, and we needed it last weekend, and I, I just wanna let you know, all the money came in last weekend, so it's all paid for, ready to go. Thank you for your giving. And uh, we have still, we're still building out some children's rooms and facilities next door. Some of you have seen the construction over there. Uh, we call it Future Builders if you wanna give to that. And all the money that came, we had more than enough come in last week, so all the money that came in over that, we're just directing it towards Future Builders. But thank you so much for giving. We got people from Congo today, from Jamaica, from Canada, from Uganda, from Barbados, from all over the world. Let's welcome all of our online viewers. We're so glad to have you. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter six. We are in a series called Trust Fund, and uh, this will be, I think, the last message uh, in the in the in that part of the series. And I was really excited when 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 I heard that we were going to do a series on finances because I know whenever we do a series on finances, it really helps uh, every one of us to kind of revolutionize and remind ourselves of what God's Word says about the most talked about subject in the Bible, our money. In fact, I, I did a study on this years ago. There's 2,354 verses in the Bible about money. Nothing even comes close. Not love, not faith, not any of those things come close. So obviously God has some things in there for us to learn. And today, I'm gonna talk to you about what I consider to be one of the biggest revelations I've ever gotten in my life about money, and that is how to break the spirit of mammon off of your life. Now, in order to do this, in order to teach this, we need to pray and ask God to open our eyes because I'm gonna share some things with you that you may not have ever heard before, and some of the things that are gonna challenge us this morning. It's gonna challenge the way we've been taught, it'll challenge the way we've grown up with money, and sometimes when we get challenged, we shut it down. So let's don't shut it down this afternoon, amen? So Father, we just thank you for the next few moments as we begin to dive into your word. I wanna pray for all of those that are watching online and all of us that are here in this room and all of our campuses that today you're gonna open our eyes of understanding and enlighten our minds to the truths that are found in the depths of your word. I pray for open eyes to see, open ears to hear, and open hearts to receive what you want to impart to us by the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. amen. All right, so the Sermon on the Mount, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount all, all year long, and we're, we're right in the middle of it right now, is filled with incredible nuggets of truth, revelation. It was one sermon preached one time on a mountain on the side of the Sea of Galilee to a large group of people what most people don't realize is in that moment, he was about to say some things that was going to revolutionize the earth, revolutionize the world, and how they think about life, how they think about God, how they think about everything. And right in the middle of the sermon, he addresses, right after he taught us on prayer, he addresses the subject of money. And he starts off in Matthew chapter 6, in verse 19, he says, makes a startling statement, he says, do not... Lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy 
and were thieves breaking and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. I remember the first time that I read that, I was a young man uh, trying to understand finance, trying to understand I had a business going, I became a Christian at at 22, and I was trying to understand, wrap my head around, how do I think about money, how do I handle money, and I came across this passage of scripture. Now, I'd read several other scriptures that had taught me about how God wanted to prosper me and bless me, but I never read a scripture quite like that that really challenged me in my view of money. What I saw in that, God began to show me, he says, there's basically two ways that people view money in the earth. The first is the temporal view. And he's talking about treasures on the earth. And here he's talking about viewing money about our possessions in light of what we can do with it while we're here on this earth and living in this temporal world. And I would say that the majority of us, that's how we've been trained to think about money, That's how we've been trained to process the way we handle money. And most of us, most of us handle money with a temporal view. But then he says there's another view, and that's an eternal view. And the eternal view is you're viewing money through the lens of eternity. And what does it mean on the other side of this life in the temporal world? What does money have to do with eternity, and does it play a part in eternity? And does it mean that how we handle money in the earth many times determines how we experience eternity on the other side? Most people never dive into that. They don't really think about eternal rewards or what it's going to be like in heaven. And is there a possibility that we can lay up for ourselves actual treasures in heaven? And Jesus is trying to get across that when you live in this earth, you're not of this earth. You're living a life for the eternal instead of for the temporal. Then he goes on and he says something that, that, that became very clear in, in the next verse, in verse 21. Here's what he says. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he says, what you do with your money causes your heart to follow. Your heart follows your money. And, and, and so I'm thinking through that, and I'm thinking, okay, so if I take a look at my money, the money that's in my hands, the steward, stewarding of my money, where is my heart? Because my heart's following whatever my money's going towards. Now, take a moment, and I want you to think about that. I want you to think about how you live your life with money, how you, li- how you think about money, how you think about life, how you think about all those things. And I would just say this. Most of us, unbeknownst to us, have been trained to think with the mindset, and I'll, and I'll say it this, the simple way I can say it is, with the American dream. The American dream. In fact, if you're from another country, ask yourself, why did you come to America? I think the majority of people that come to America is because they've heard about the American dream. They've heard about the possibility that you can live a life of prosperity that's unlike any other life in the world. Many people come to, to this country from other nations that are not succeeding financially, and they're struggling economically, and they've heard if they come to America, they can make more money, they can have a better life, they can enjoy life more. And most of us have been taught that when you come up in your life, go to high school, get your degree, go to college, get a degree, get a good job, buy a house, buy cars, invest your money, have vacations, enjoy your life. That's what life is about. That's the American dream, and I'm here to tell you, 
and this is going to be shocking to you, the American dream is not God's dream. It's not God's dream. But we've Americanized God's dream. We've westernized the the financial life that we live now. We've taken the word of God and we've twisted it to align with what we want, what we wanna do with money. And we've made God's word agree with what we want. And God is so clear, so precise. That's why he goes right to the heart of it. He says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then he makes the next statement. And he talks about the eye. And we talked about this last week. He says, the lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, your eye is good. Your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, I've heard people teach on that scripture that it has nothing to do with money. But if you look in the context of it, obviously it does have something to do with money. He's basically saying you're either focusing your eye on things on the earth or you're focusing your eye on things in eternal, eternity, that have eternal value. And he's saying how you focus where you put your eye is either filled with the light of the gospel or it's filled with darkness. Then he goes into the very heart of this message. And here's what he says as he closes this thought out in verse 24. Let's read this out loud together. No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, I don't know about you, but most of the people I know that are Christians try to serve both. Most people try to serve both. And if they're really honest with their life, Usually, if you look at the way they live their life, mammon has control over the way they live their life. It's a spirit, a spirit of mammon. And it started way back in the very beginning of the Bible. When you start to study the spirit of mammon, you begin to realize that the origin of mammon is not just talking about money, but it actually was a God that they worshiped. It started in Genesis chapter 11, as the people begin to shift their focus away from God onto themselves. And as they started to focus on themselves, they begin to develop a new religion, which we call humanism. Humanism was birthed in Genesis 11 when they begin to think of themselves as equal with God. In other words, I am my own God. And they said, if we can pool all of our efforts, all of our resources, and say the same thing and do the same thing, we can build a tower up to heaven and we can become equal with God. The Bible says God saw this and confounded their languages. And once their languages were confounded, they couldn't understand each other. They couldn't say the same thing and do the same thing. And they became disunified and they began to separate and abandon the the tower and form the nations, the ethnos of the world of which you and I are a part of. Somewhere around 196 nations are in the earth today that speak different languages, that have different cultures. We happen to be a rare church where 145 of those nations come to church at one place. And what you see in the Bible is once that started happening, all hell broke loose on the earth. 
People begin to abandon God and begin to worship their culture, worship their people, worship humans. And the next thing you know, the curse began to spread through the earth and started consuming people. Along the line, they begin to worship different gods. You had different religions begin to form out of these cultures. And they would do this superstitiously. And one of the gods that they worshiped back in that day was Mammon. Mammon was a god. And Mammon represented riches, prosperity, the good life. And if you worshiped him and you bowed down to him, he would give you these things. It reminds me of the time when Jesus was out in the desert in, in fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and Lucifer, Satan, came to him and took him up on a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all its riches. And he said, if you will bow down and you will worship me, I will give you all of these things. And the Bible says, he said to Jesus, these things have been delivered to me and I have the power to give them to you. The interesting thing about that scripture in Luke chapter four is Jesus did not say that was untrue. For you see, in the garden, when Adam and Eve gave up their authority by sinning, they handed over that authority to Lucifer. And he uses that authority to deceive the whole world, and he knew the number one way he could get control of people is get their hearts to worship mammon instead of worship God. That spirit got on money, and in Genesis 11, they were in a place called Babylon. And that Babylonian cultural system of economics began to birth out of that time that has spread through the earth over the last several thousand years. Jesus comes on the scene, and he starts to try to teach us how to break that spirit. Because if, it doesn't break, if you don't break that spirit, it will control you. The spirit of mammon has a lot of control on the earth today. When I started studying it, I began to realize that mammon is responsible for almost all of the wars that have been formed throughout the earth. Wars are fought usually over economics. The number one battle that we see happening today that's not an actual physical war, but it's a spiritual war, is the battle between who will control the world in the future. Which country will have the power to control the world? There's a battle right now between China and America for the economic power of the world because whoever has the most economic power has the most power. They have the most power to build armies, to, to build arsenals of weaponry, to control the economics of the world. And you'll just see this nation against nation has always got something to do with the spirit of mammon. Now, when you read all the way to the end of the Bible, you begin to see that this spirit ultimately is what deceives the whole world. In Revelations, the Bible describes what ends up happening to the spirit of Babylon in Revelations 18, verse 2. And he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen. He's talking about the Babylonian system of economics. Has fallen. Is fallen has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. The merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. 
And then in verse 23, it says, the light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore, for your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. All the nations were deceived. All the nations of the earth were deceived. By the way, we live in one of those nations. And if there's ever been a nation that's deceived about money, it's the United States of America. And here's the thing about money. It has a spirit on it. And you either have the spirit of mammon or you have the spirit of God on your money. And in order to have the spirit of God, you have to break the spirit of mammon. As I was thinking through the whole concept of how to break through the spirit of mammon, the Lord began to just show me picture after picture of how the earth is controlled by money, how many people are controlled by money, how many families are controlled by money. Marriages are divided and divorced usually over things that have to do with money. Children fall away from their parents usually because the parents are so busy making money they stop paying attention to their children. Whole nations are divided over how the economy will work. We're about to go into a beautiful political season. We're kind of already in it. And we're all, gonna, we're all thrilled about that. Aren't we all thrilled about that? We're all thrilled about that. We can't wait to see what's going to unfold. It's almost like a soap opera. Would you all agree with me? It's almost like watching a television show that's not real, that's surreal. And we have two people at the leading polls on both parties that nobody in America wants. <laughs> nobody in America wants, yet they're probably going to get voted against each other. And we're going to see all kinds of stuff unfold in this next election cycle. And can I just, can I just tell you, as a, as a person who loves you and has pastored this church for many, many years until we transitioned three years ago, please, please do not allow the politics of this world, the systems of this world, to divide us as a congregation. Please do not allow that to happen. God is not a Republican and God is not a Democrat. He doesn't wake up and watch Fox News and then CNN. He doesn't, do, he doesn't get all his information from the world. He has a way of doing things that completely opposite of the way the world functions. And whoever becomes the president is not the make or break of the future of our lives. The make or break of our future is dependent on God, not on people, not on humans, in Jesus' name. So please, don't allow that to happen to you. But the number one thing that causes politics to divide is usually over mammon, economics, biblical economics or worldly economics. And so mammon has this power. So how do you break it? How do you break its control off of your life? I'm going to give you three things this afternoon that I think will help you. And I think if you apply these three things, it'll be a starting point for you to get a handle on the resources that God entrusts you with. The first one is you've got to begin to view your life in the light of eternity. You've got to see your life in, through an eternal perspective instead of a temporal perspective. So while Jesus was on the earth, he was trying his best to teach this to his followers. And here's a few verses. The first one is in the book of John. And here's what he says in John 15, verse 19. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, 
therefore the world hates you. Now this was, I didn't know this as a Christian that when you sign up to follow Jesus, the world's not necessarily gonna love you anymore. In fact, you're gonna be in opposition to the world system because you're gonna be help trying to take people out of the world into the mar marvelous light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's a great conflict between the gospel of Christ and the systems of this world. How many of you have noticed that? And how many of you notice that the Bible doesn't always agree with the people of the world? The people of the world have their, their program, their agenda, the way they think, because they think like the world. Once you become a follower of Jesus, he's saying you've got to come out of the world and be separated in the sense of no longer following the world, loving the world, blending into the world. He would go on to say it this way in, in John 18, verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world, indicating that if you're gonna fight anything in the earth, fight for the kingdom of God, not the kingdoms of this world. And then John says it this way in 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember the first time I read this, and even reading it right now, that challenges me. Because there are times when I love the world. There are times when I love the things of the world, things that are in the world. And I have to remind myself, these are temporal things. These are not eternal things. And I've got to th start thinking eternally instead of temporarily. And then he closes the, uh, 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 Paul closes it out this way. He says, set your minds, Colossians chapter three, verse two, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are in the earth. All right, so let me ask you how, something. How you doing with that? Setting yourself in your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. How do people in the world motivate you financially? By showing you things in the earth. By showing you things. You go to conferences, they'll show you, look at all this vacation you can take, this car you can buy, this house you can live in, all these kind of things. If you'll just sign on the dotted line, become a part of our business, you're gonna become a multimillionaire. You're gonna have it. You can have it all. It's your money and you want it now. And the reality is that most people live for the now, not for eternity. And as long as you live for the now, listen to me carefully, listen to me, the spirit of mammon will control you. It'll control the way you live your life and the way you think. So you've gotta settle in your mind that you are a chosen people out of this world, called out of this world. You live in the world, but you're not of this world. And the world's not gonna like you. It's gonna hate you. And you're gonna have to live with the fact that people are gonna not agree with you about what you believe because the Bible is not something that everybody in the world agrees with. All right, second thing, as you start to break the spirit of mammon, you got to begin to maximize the use of money for the purposes of God. Maximize the use of money for the purposes of God. Now, when I started my journey, I began to give to the Lord, and I started serving God, and I started giving to the Lord, but I didn't really understand what it meant to maximize the purposes of God. So I started studying the Bible. And as I started studying the Bible, I began to realize that there was a pattern in the Bible 
where God was trying to show the people how to live their life, not for the earth, but for the things of God, and break free from it. And he warned them, and he said this to the Jewish people as he's leading them out. He said to the Jewish people, he said, when you get into the promised land, don't forget me. And realize this, that I'm gonna give you the power to get wealth on the earth, but not so you'll just have a great life, but so that you can establish my covenant in the earth. His covenant, not your covenant. God's covenant. Now, what is his covenant? His covenant with the Jew was something a little different than his covenant with the, with the Gentile. As he goes into the times of Jesus, the, the new covenant, which was established upon better promises, was a covenant of forgiveness and entrance into heaven through Jesus Christ. So he's saying that the way you maximize the use of your money is to get as much of it as you can into the, into the purposes of bringing people to Christ. Now, I was reading an article not too long ago about the billionaire agreement that was signed in America a few years ago amongst many billionaires, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, uh, all the different, the founder of Facebook, all the different people that are out there that have lots of money. And the agreement was that we wanna give all of our money away before we die. We wanna give it all away. We don't wanna give it all to our children because first of all, our children are probably not equipped to handle billions of dollars and they don't need billions of dollars. And so Warren Buffett was kind of one of the leading people in this, him and Bill Gates. And he started talking, he did some interviews about it. And one of the things that he was saying was, is that I've established this, I'm, I'm giving most of my money to the Bill Gates Foundation, but I've discovered a problem that I have this ability to make money faster than I can give it away. In other words, I, I, I'm giving billions of dollars away, but because I have lots of money, billions of dollars that's investing, and I can't stop my ability to make money, so I'm making money to give it away. I'm making money to give it away. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, all these guys, they started giving their money away, and to this date, they've given billions of dollars into different causes. Most of these causes have to do with things like medical research, curing things like cancer and so forth, education in the world where there's not been good education, building uh, uh, things in the earth to help the poor, the needy, the disenfranchised, whatever, bring equal rights, so forth. And they're all very good causes. There's not one of them that's a bad cause. It's all designed to help humanity. It's what we call humanitarian work, humanitarian efforts. Now, the only challenge with humanitarian efforts is if you feed people and you clothe people and you educate people and you help people to rise economically, but you don't give them the gospel, they still go to hell. They still go to hell. So even though you help people in the earth temporarily, when they die, if they die without the gospel, they still have the same repercussions as everybody else that dies without the gospel. Y'all all right out there? So what, he's trying, what, what, what God's trying to show us is, it's not wrong to help people, but you have to add to it the gospel. You have to put the gospel in there, which means that it's come in, come in conflict with some of the humanitarian efforts, because some of the humanitarian efforts are in conflict with the gospel. They don't want the gospel 
They just want to help humans be better because they only think that this is the world, the only world we'll ever experience. Now, once you become a follower of Jesus, you begin to realize there's a whole different world out there called eternity. And when you enter into eternity, it's forever and ever and ever, and you're either with God or you're in hell. And there's a real hell and a real torture and a real torment for humanity that, doesn't re that rejects Christ and turns away from God. You can make up all your mysteries and philosophies about hell, but the Bible's pretty clear about it. The Bible says it's eternal. It's not something that goes away like your just life goes away and doesn't exist anymore and there's nothing else after that. It's eternal and it's torment. And I don't know about you, but I don't want anybody to go there. God never created hell for people. He created it for the devil and his angels. The only reason people are going there is because Satan is taking them there with him. He's created a world system to dis disrupt them, deceive them away from what Jesus provided for us on the cross. So, he's, in order for you to break the spirit of mammon off of your money, it's not just about good humanitarian efforts, it's about propagating the gospel through those humanitarian efforts, using your money to do that. So, I'm, I'm reading a story about David Green, who's the, one of the founders and owners of Hobby Lobby, and recently in 2021, he made the national and actually the world news of taking his company and putting it in a trust and dis dissolving his ownership of this company 100%. They came and they interviewed them. They said, what do you mean you don't own this company? It's worth billions of dollars. It's generating billions of dollars. And here's what he said. He said, I don't own anything. I never did own it. I'm just making it legal in the eyes of man. He said, God is the owner of everything. He owns it all. And I'm only called on this earth to be a steward of it. So he says, I don't want to own it because ownership means that I'm in control. I'm the one in charge. So I put it in charge of God and I, and I dedicated myself for the rest of my life along with my family to steward these resources to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the earth. The news people that were interviewing him, Fox News, CNN, all they were just scoffed. They just couldn't believe a human being would say something like that that your whole reason for doing this is to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's because the world doesn't understand you're not of this world. You don't live in this world. You, I mean, live for this world. You live in this world, but not for this world. And so he started doing that. He's given billions of dollars, continues to give it away. But once you get in that stratosphere of economics, you just keep making money. You just keep generating things, and, and the gospel continues to spread. And what God is trying to say to us is, how much do you want to use your money to maximize its purpose for eternity? How much can I get in the, in the earth to bring people to Christ versus how much am I using it just to consume it, just to consume it? Y'all all right out there? Jesus is not a consumer. He's a giver. He's a generous God. And I'm not talking about just giving to a church. I'm talking about just having a heart that wants to propagate the gospel. Amen? So Paul writes this letter in the book of 1 Timothy, and here's what he says. And he's talking specifically to people who have money. Teach those, chapter 6, verse 17, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. So right there he says, God's not trying to keep you poor. He wants to, you to enjoy life and be blessed. 
So he's not saying you can't have anything, but he's saying that's not the purpose of money. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. And I wanna add that. Share with others is not just share your goods, but share the gospel. And then he says, by doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so they may, be, they may experience true life. I like, I like what um, Winston Churchill said. He said, we make a, he says, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. Now, I was reading one time, this was a few years ago, about this, this, the sudden success of a pastor named Rick Warren. Rick Warren wrote a book uh, in 2003 called The Purpose Driven Life. How many of you have ever read that book? Let me see your hand. It, it became a national and worldwide bestseller. They sold over 25 million copies within the first year and a half. No book had ever sold that fast ever in the history of mankind. The only book that's outsold The Purpose Driven Life is the Bible itself. The Bible is the most uh, written and, and read book in all of history. But he, he, he suddenly became an instant millionaire many times over, and he's the pastor of a church, a similar church to this, a little bigger than ours church, but a, a good-sized church. And he was suddenly faced with this dilemma now as a pastor, how am I going to steward this sudden increase of wealth? How am I gonna take care of it? So he made a decision, and the first thing he did is he called his chief financial officer, and he says, I want you to get me all the money that the church has paid me all over all these years that I've pastored this church. And he came back with a very large sum of money. It was a few, I don't remember exactly how much it was, but it was a few million dollars over a long period of time. And then he took a check and he stroked a check and he wrote it back to the church and gave it all back to the church. That's the first thing he did. Then the second thing he did is he created a foundation and the foundation was based on this principle of reverse tithing. He said, my goal in life is to give away 90% of all that I have and live on the 10%. Come on, somebody. 90%. So he decided, I'm not gonna get a new house. I'm not gonna go drive a fancy car. I'm not gonna change the lifestyle I had. I'm just gonna try to do my best to steward this money to preach the gospel in the earth. And God began to multiply it and multiply it and multiply it. And as fast as he could give it away, God kept giving it back to him. They estimated his net worth, even today, at $30 million, $30 million for his own personal net worth, even though he continues to give just millions and millions of dollars away. What I'm trying to get you to see is no matter how hard you try to give it away, God will always get it to you if he can get it through you. Amen? Now, I'm talking on the level of billionaire thinking millionaire thinking, which most of us don't live on those levels. Most of us live at a much lower level than that. We live at a lower level, and because of that, we look at that, we celebrate that, we think that's wonderful, but we don't understand how do we live within the realm of how we make money, how we have money in our lives, which leads me to the third way, the third principle of breaking the spirit of mammon, faithfulness regardless of the amount. Write that down, faithfulness, regardless of the amount. I have people all the time coming up to me, asking me, how do I break free from debt? How do I get out of debt? How do I get free from materialistic thinking? How do I get free from greed? So Jesus 
comes along and he tells a parable about an unjust steward. He talks about how this steward was not good with the, his master's money, and so he went around and made deals with all these people. If you just pay half, you pay half, then you'll be free from your debt. And he said he was building himself into a relationship with these people so that when he lost his job, these people would receive him into an everlasting habitation. And he was using this as a type and shadow of using your money to win souls so that when you get to heaven, they will receive you. All those people that you gave money to rent, win to Christ will receive you into an everlasting habitation. What most people don't realize about giving to God is when you give to God, when you use your money to do the things that God is wanting in the earth, your money can preach the gospel 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. While you're sleeping, you're eating, you're vacationing, your money can make the gospel go around the world. You can be sitting here in church on Sunday morning, and because of money that, we, that you give to the church that we support uh, somebody over in Africa doing an evangelistic crusade, they're winning thousands of people, and part of that credit goes to you because you gave, because you supported God's work. Are you following me? You could be sitting here at your home watching a baseball game while your money is building orphanages, is rescuing human trafficking victims, is digging wells around the world to water those who are dying of starvation and, and waterborne illnesses. You can literally preach the gospel around the clock if you're faithful. So Jesus then gives this statement about faithfulness. He says, if you cannot be faithful over unrighteous mammon, how can God trust you with the true riches in heaven? If you can't be faithful over the money that he gives you in the earth, how can he trust you with anything bigger than that? How can he trust you? The question is not, do we trust God? The question is, does God trust us? So I want you to think about that. If God were to take a look at the way you give your money, steward your money, help people, does he, have an, does he have a good look that he can trust you, that he can trust you with money? So that brings me to this kind of conclusion of this message of how did God create this whole concept of faithfulness? So you go all the way back to the Bible, in the early stages of the Bible, and you begin to see a pattern that starts to develop, even in the Garden of Eden, where God says to, to Adam and Eve, do not, he says, you can eat of everything that's in here, but he says, there's one thing I've reserved for myself, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't handle the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat of that, I've reserved that for myself. So immediately Satan comes to test the word of God with Adam and Eve. And here's what he says, has God really said, has he really said you shall not eat of this tree? For God knows that if you eat of this tree, you will become like him. And of course, we all know the story. They fell into that trap. They believed the devil. They trusted in the devil's words over God's words. They, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Bible says when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the curse came on the earth. And the curse came on Adam, and the curse that came on Adam was on his ground. And he said to Adam, cursed is the ground for your sake. In it you will toil day and night, and he says, and by it you will work for the rest of your life by the sweat of your brow. 
In other words, you're not gonna receive blessings in the earth. You're gonna live under the curse because you have disobeyed me and you have taken what is mine for yourself. You've eaten of it. You've partaken of it. I said it's reserved for me, but you took it and partook of it anyway. Then you fast forward all the way up to Abraham. Now, Genesis 11 records the Tower of Babel, the Babylonian Empire, the division of mankind, the wars, all the things start there. Genesis chapter 12 sees the emergence of this man named Abraham, who God cuts a covenant with and says, surely I will bless you and I will make you a father of many nations. And, though, and he says, and not only will I bless you, but I'll bless all the nations that are connected to you. And he says, you will be blessed coming in and blessed going out. So Abraham starts his journey. He leaves his family to follow God's will, going towards the promises of God, the promised land. And in the journey, he takes his nephew Lot with him, and their, their farms and their crops and everything gets so large, they have to divide into two different parts of the land. So Lot takes one part of the land, he takes the other, and Lot gets invaded by surrounding armies. They take all the goods. They take all the family, the children, the wives, they take everything, and they, they go off. And Lot, they send word to Abraham, your cousin Lot has been attacked and they've lost everything. Abraham gathers 318 men. Oh God, give me 318 men, like the men that were with Abraham. And they pursued the enemy and they defeated him. And they bought all the resources that had been accumulated under Lot's family and all his generations. They brought all the resources together. And the first thing that happens right after that is Abraham meets with this priest named Melchizedek. And he comes to the high priest Melchizedek. And by the way, you'll see in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about this priest Melchizedek is a type and a shadow of Jesus. And he says to the high priest, I'm gonna give you a tithe of all that I have. I'm gonna worship God by giving him the first 10% of everything that's been won in this war that I've taken from in this, in this uh, attack. He gives him the tithe. Now I want you to notice something. The tithe is not under the law. He's not tithing under the law. He's tithing under faith, believing and trusting that God, I want you to know you get the first of everything that I have because God is a God of first. He knows if you'll put him first, he can trust you. Come on, somebody. If you put him first, he can trust you. So he starts giving the tithe. Then the people come with all the possessions that he had just taken. They say, take it all, Abraham. You earned it. You've taken it. It all belongs to you. And Abraham said, I will not take it. I will not take this money. It was not mine to begin with, and I will surely not take it because I don't want you to think that you're the one who is prospering me. I know that my God will take care of me. So he gave it all back to the people and trusted in God. God put his hand on Abraham and blessed him and blessed all the generations after him. His son Isaac and then his son Jacob, they would all become tithers to God, giving the first fruits of all their increase to God. Then it was incorporated into the law under Moses, and the people began to see, if I can be faithful over giving God what's first and make it holy unto the Lord, then God will trust me with the rest. In Leviticus, he says of the tithe, the tithe is separated and sanctified and holy to God. It is not to be used for man. It's to be used for the purposes of God. 
And the people reverenced it, and they began to tithe their firstborn, the first lamb, the first calf, the first fruits of their crops. And God put his hand on them and blessed them. But slowly but surely, their success took them away from God. They began to forget God and disobey God. And usually the first thing people take away when they leave God is their resources, is their money. And the last thing they give to him is their money because it's the number one competitor for God. And so the people stopped tithing, they stopped giving. All of a sudden, the curse came back into their life. Their ground was cursed. Everything they touched was cursed. They were getting to get defeated by armies. Their marriages were falling apart. Their children were departing and not, and not living for God anymore. The whole nation of Israel fell away from God for many years, and the prophets spent all of the, what we see the New Testament trying to speak to them, calling them back until we get to the end of the Old Testament in Malachi. Malachi, one of the final minor prophets, speaks to them right before God is silent for 400 years. And here's what he says. Is he, he, says will, he says, will you return to me? And they goes, how do we return to you, God? And then he asks them a question, and you've read this question many times before, I'm sure, in your Bible. In Malachi 3, verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what we, way have we robbed you? And he says, in tithes and offerings. Let's say, say that together. In tithes and offerings. You stop tithing. You stop giving offerings. And you're robbing me. You've taken what's holy and you've applied it to that which is unholy. And because you've applied it to that which is unholy, here's the result. You are cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me, even this whole nation. If you want to correct this, bring all the tithe. Everybody say all the tithe. All the tithe into the storehouse. The storehouse was the place where they were fed, where they were taken care of. In this case, it was the temple, and now it's the church. That there may be food in my house, and try me or prove me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And if that's not enough, and I will rebuke the devourer. Who's the devourer? Satan. For your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you, this is how you're gonna be separated from all the other nations of the world, will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land says the Lord of hosts. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, and this, this is what goes through the mind of a person, listen to me, that struggles with mammon. That's Old Testament. I live in the New Testament. I live in the New Testament. And the Old Testament, that's the law, and we're not living by the law anymore. Well, let me ask you a question. You really don't think you're living by the law anymore? Okay, one of the laws of God, the Ten Commandments, the laws of God, said you shall not murder. Did we change that in the New Testament? Did the, did the law suddenly change that now you can get away with murder? Huh? No, you're not supposed to murder anymore. Would y'all agree with that? So we all judge murder as a crime and send people to prison for it, don't we? Because we still operate under the laws of God because the laws of God are timeless. They're timeless. 
Jesus didn't say he came to do away with the law. He came to fulfill the law and the requirements of the law so that even if you did murder, you would go to prison, but you could still be forgiven of your sins and go to heaven. But it doesn't negate the physical things that will happen to you if you disobey the law. He says, you shall not commit adultery. Did we change the law now in the New Testament? We can go out and commit adultery now? No. It says, you shall not cheat or deceive your brother. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. You shall not worship any other Lord of God's, other than God himself. All those things are still applicable today. We just have a redeemer, a savior that saves us when we mess up and disobey the law. Come on, somebody. Yes. 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 Now, here's what I found. Here's what I found. The tithe was not because God needs your money. What God wants is your heart. But where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, what we've done as American independent people, we've made up whole theologies about what we can do with the tithe. We can help the poor with the tithe. We can send the tithe to our grandma in another country. We can pay our bills with the tithe because God is not a God of the law anymore. He's a God of grace. And we don't recognize that the tithe was not designed to put you in bondage. It was designed to liberate you from the spirit of mammon, to break its control off of your life. God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. And when you don't give him the first, what you're saying is, I'm in control. I'm in control. I'm the one who takes care of myself. I'm the one who's going to go out and make a living and pay my bills and do my thing. Let me ask you a question. How's that working for you? I decided a long time ago, God, I want to be in your will when it comes to money. Tithing was always designed to just prove faithfulness in our hearts. If we can be faithful over unrighteous mammon, God can trust us with the greater riches in heaven. What I've found is, in the New Testament, everything you talk, every time you talk about money, it's everything beyond the tithe. It's unbelievable generosity. It's generosity that most of us would never even conceive of. In the New Testament, when the church started in Acts chapter 2, they went out and sold all of their possessions, their houses, their lands, everything, and brought all the proceeds into the church and distributed them such as had need. So I'll take a New Testament giver over an Old Testament giver any day of the week. But don't excuse yourself from giving because you're in the New Testament, you just stepped up another level in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, but in the New Testament, God says, you love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate for you, and pray for those who use you and persecute you. In, in the Old Testament, we worshiped him with timbrels and song and dance. Well, we didn't stop that just because the New Testament doesn't mention any of that. He says, but those who worship me will also worship me in spirit and in truth. A whole nother level of worship that's not just celebration, but true spiritual worship to God. Everything in the new is higher than the old. Not less than the old, but higher. More sacrificial. 
more living for God. Because God knew as time would draw near, mammon would start to control humanity. And in order for his people to stay free and liberated so he could put his hand and trust them and bless them, they had to put him first with their money. Then he says this. Wait a minute. Then he says this. And here's what he says at the last few verses of the Old Testament before he goes silent for 400 years. Then those who feared the Lord, verse 16, spoke to one another. This is right after he teaches on tithing. And the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Now look at this, check this out. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Whoa. He just connected tithing to one who serves God and one who does not. Wow. When we started this church 33 years ago, the Lord spoke to me and he said, you're always gonna be a tithing church, but I want you to double that. I want to give twice as much as, you know, instead of giving 10% out of the church, give 20% out of the church. And set a goal, and I set a goal for the, for the tenure that we're here, that we're here, of $100 million. This past uh, June, when we did the reconciling of our accounts, we have given, as a church, $94.5 million into missions, into missions over the years. Now, I'll be honest with you, never in my wildest of dreams did I think when I was in college at the University of Georgia that I would be able to lead an organization that would give over $100 million out of this organization. And not only that, but all the things that it would do, propagate the gospel, rescue human trafficking victims, build hospitals that would take people in and then preach the gospel to them, build Christian schools in Muslim nations, dig water wells and then create churches around those water wells that would bring people into church. We bought a whole brothel in Ethiopia and we transformed that brothel into a church uh, with the first Sunday, 400 human trafficking victims attended the very first Sunday service in that brothel. I have seen God do amazing things. And when people come up to me in the lobby and they say, tithings of the Old Testament, I can't believe you put pressure on your people to tithe. I tell them, why don't you just go find another church? And people say, would you want people to leave? What kind of person is leaving? A non-tither, a non-giver? Yes. <laughs> what good are they? I don't need people to sit in chairs in the church. I need people to do the gospel in the church, people to live the gospel in the church. I, I, I just told the Lord, Lord said, you get to choose who you lose by what you preach. If you don't preach commitment, you'll get non-committed people. If you preach commitment, you'll lose the non-committed people, but you'll get committed people into the church. We're not here building a church like a hospital. We're building an army, an army to take the gospel to the whole world and preach it across the earth. We're not called to just be comfortable in church. We're called to be sacrificial in church, to live our lives for the kingdom because we're not of this world. We're not living for this world. 
So we're trying to live our life in such a way that I wanna maximize as much of our resource for the kingdom. I have to live and I do have to have things to pay my bills, but I'm not gonna take all of my life and budget my life around that. I'm gonna set my goal each year of what I wanna give and then build my budget around my giving instead of build my giving around my budget. Did y'all hear what I just said? And before long, you'll find yourself giving 20, 30% and still living better than you ever lived in the past. Where God's hand is on your money because he can trust you. He can trust you. You're a good steward. And when you start to live like that and the spirit of mammon is broken off of your life, it is a full life. It is an abundant life where your money matters, where you're using it to propagate the gospel through the earth. You're not just building your kingdom. In fact, you're making some sacrifices in your personal life for the sake of spreading the gospel into the world. That's the kind of church that we wanna be at Victory. These are the kind of people that we wanna be at Victory. We don't wanna be stingy, fearful, greedy. We want to be generous, loving, and blessing people all over the world. The Lord puts his hand on you when you're generous. He removes his hand when you're stingy. Amen. So what would it take? What would it take to break the spirit of mammon? You don't live in this world for this world. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. It's temporal. You're living for the eternal. I wanna take whatever resources you put in my hands, God, and I wanna maximize them for your purposes. And God, whatever I have, the little that I have, I just wanna be faithful over it. I just wanna be trusted that you can say, well done, good and faithful steward over this earth, that you took your resources, you didn't just live for yourself, you lived for others to bring the kingdom of God to them, so that when you stand before me in heaven and you give an accounting of your life, I can look back and see all the things you did with your money on the earth to bring people into the kingdom. That's what God is calling a Christian. That's a true Christian, somebody who lives for God. Will you be one of those Christians? Will you be one of those people in this church? I want you to stand up to your feet. I want you to take a pause, a selah, and I want you to think about what was just said. Before you go home, I want you to consider how you've handled resources in the past and how you're going to handle them in the future. And I want you to consider this one thought, that you really can't have a full transformation of generosity in your heart until you're born again, until you come fully to Jesus and repent of your sins and ask God to forgive you it wasn't until I surrendered my life to Jesus that I started having a heart of generosity. I was a stingy, self-serving person who was materialistic all the way until I came to Jesus. And when Jesus came into my heart, he transformed my heart and created in me a new heart and a new mind to think and act like him. So if you're here, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you've never received Jesus Christ, into your life as your personal Lord and Savior. And you would like to, you say, God, I need forgiveness of sins. I need to start my life with you, God, right here today. I'm not gonna embarrass you. I'm gonna pray with you, though, right where you're standing. And if that's you, every head bowed, every eye closed, and all of you watching online, 
All I want you to simply do is just say, that's me, God, by lifting your hand. Just lift it up high all across this building. Say, that's me, Jesus. That's me, that's me. I see all your hands. Thank you. I'm gonna lead us in a prayer. Let's say this together. Jesus, right here, right now, I repent of my sins and I turn away from the love of this world to loving you, God. I believe that Jesus Christ, you are the Lord and the Savior of the world. I believe you died on a cross for my sins and you rose from the dead. And today, I ask you, Jesus Christ, come into my heart, drive out all the darkness and replace it with love. Today, I ask you, Jesus Christ, to be the Lord and the Savior of my life in Jesus' name. Now, just lift your hands to him right now. Just lift your hands and worship him for just a moment. Just thank him right now because God's doing a miracle in this room. He's taking people that have lived their whole life for themselves, and he's transforming them internally. The Holy Spirit's coming to live inside of you today. This is going to be the greatest day of your life. You'll look back on this day as a day that you'll never forget for the rest of your life. And as you start this journey with Jesus, that's when you start dedicating your heart. Everything belongs to you, God. Everything. I want my heart to be fully engaged with you. So we're going to make a confession before we go home today. And if you want to make this confession, then you say it out loud with me as I say it. Jesus, right now, right here, I dedicate my life to you. And everything you give me belongs to you. You own it all. I'm the steward. You're the owner. And today, I make a decision to become a tither, a giver, generous in this life, giving you always first what belongs to you so that you can then put your hand on me and bless the rest. Today, God, I believe you're breaking the spirit of mammon off of my life. And from this day forward, I'm free from that spirit because the spirit of God is on my life. Today, I'm yours, you are mine. And everything you give to me, I give it back to you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Come on, and amen. Let's celebrate that.